How can any church have a long and secure and joyful future? At least as much as it depends upon us. Some believe that the answer lies in having a vision to picture in your mind what the church might look like in five years, ten years, twenty years' time. Others come up with a mission statement. It's often three things. If you've ever read church's mission statements, you usually find it's a fairly uninspired and far from unique statement of the obvious to which most evangelical Christians will say, well, yes, of course, the church should be concerned about that. Others perhaps will pin their hopes on having certain types of activities, structures, a particular focus, programs, strategies, all of these things about which the Bible has very little to say. But it does have a lot to say on how, as much as depends upon us, how a church can have a long, secure joyful future now obviously ultimately all of these things are in the lord's hands this is christ's church he's the head of it but the bible has much to say about church life and what it entails where do we go from here some people ask How can the church move forward, they inquire. Well, I look into the New Testament scriptures and, uh, well, you can look there with me and if you can find parts of the scriptures that define and example a church that is going somewhere, if you can find those scriptures that define and example a church moving forward, well, come and share them with me because we've got ground we can work with if we're talking about the scriptures together. Now, here's a letter in the Bible about how a church can grow spiritually. Here's a letter in the Bible about how a church can remain faithful. Here's a letter in the Bible about how a church can remain useful to God, free from error. Now that's something I am interested in. I hope you are too. So this letter is worthy of our study and our consideration. Well, let's examine these opening verses because they tell us an awful lot and they really are very helpful to spend a little time this morning thinking about them. God willing, from this evening, we'll continue from verse 5. Well, the letter is written to Titus, who is in Crete. And uh, I've got a map that will come up and you can have a look. Crete is in the centre towards the bottom with all 
These are the places from the New Testament accounts, uh, all written down there. We'll leave that up for a little while. This, this letter is the third of three what we call pastoral epistles, the other two, of course, being 1 and 2 Timothy, written to two men who, compared to Paul, were relatively young. They were pastors of churches, and Paul trusts they will continue in pastoral ministry in Christ's church long after he has been taken to heaven. The two letters that were written to Timothy, well, he was looking after the church in Ephesus. This one letter is written to Titus, and Paul has left him in pastoral charge of all the believers on the island of Crete. See that in verse 5. The year is around AD 62. The island's long and narrow. It's about roughly 150 miles by 30. It's got a very rugged and mountainous interior, which means that most of the people live in the coast, dotted around the island. Today, it's the most populous of the Greek islands. It's the largest of the Greek islands. It's the fifth largest island in the Mediterranean. And if you like these kinds of facts and figures, it's the 88th largest island in the world. That's rather irrelevant to our studies this morning. Now, Titus, we saw one occasion where he's mentioned, he's mentioned quite a few times in the New Testament scriptures. He has considerable qualification and suitability for church leadership. And that comes across when you consider the different tasks that Paul assigned to him and the kind of experience that Titus already has when Paul writes this letter to him. In Galatians chapter 2, the beginning of that chapter, we find there that it's 14 years after Paul's conversion and he goes to Jerusalem with Barnabas. But Titus is also with them. Titus has been long-serving with Paul already, even though he's relatively young. Paul refers to Titus as my true son in verse 4. And we believe that that is a good indication that Titus was actually converted under Paul's ministry and has been working alongside him, maybe since his conversion, or certainly for a good while now. It was interesting, I, I thought last week of when Stuart talked about the sower dancing as the seed produces fruit. Surely here in Titus is someone in, over whom Paul's soul danced as he saw all that God had done with this young man and continued to do and how he was of service to Christ's church. Useful, loyal in gospel ministry. Titus gets a mention eight times in 2 Corinthians. We read one of the passages there. On one occasion, uh, when Paul arrived at Troas and discovered that Titus was not there, Paul describes himself as having no rest in his spirit because of the absence of Titus. Now, you might expect that it would be the other way around, that Titus would feel like that because Paul wasn't there. 
But Paul says, I had no rest in my spirit because Titus was absent. There's a measure of the man and a caliber of the man, the character of the man, the spirituality of the man. That Paul felt bereft that Titus was not there to greet him and to share fellowship with him. In chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, we discover that it's actually Titus who's the bearer of that letter. Paul's entrusted Titus to take that letter to the Corinthian church. And Paul says this of Titus, Thanks be to God who puts the same earnest care for you into the heart of Titus. That he not only accepted the exhortation, but being more diligent, he went to you of his own accord. He is my partner and fellow worker. And in 2 Timothy 4, we're told by Paul that Titus went all the way to Dalmatia to preach and minister there. And on that map before Dalmatia, it was way up at the top, a good distance away. Titus would go out on his own and uh, he would go out on a limb for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of Christ's churches. So we see from other parts of the New Testament that Titus is trusted, he's capable, he's an experienced gospel worker, he's been trained by Paul, he's spent many years ministering alongside him. We might say he's cut from the same cloth as the apostle. But that doesn't mean that Titus is not in need of encouragement. He needs plenty of encouragement in the assignment that he has on the island of Crete. Pastoral work is difficult and frustrating because people, even Christian people, can be difficult and frustrating, can't I? We all are at times. And a quick glance further down the letter gives us an indication of what Titus is up against on the island of Crete. For this reason, verse 5, I left you in Crete that you should set in order the things that are lacking. We'll come on to the rest of the verse this evening. And then if you read from verse 10, for there are many insubordinate, idle talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true, says Paul. Therefore, Rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. He was talking about Christians who are finding it really hard to shake off the cultural things that have shaped them and molded them for so many years. Quite a battle Titus faces on the island of Crete. Quite a work that it is that he's been given to do. He's got his work cut out. How he must have rejoiced when he received Paul's letter. 
not because he's ignorant of the things that Paul has written to him, but sometimes you just need to hear it again. You need to hear it afresh. You need to have it applied to your current circumstances. Pastors' conferences are often like that. It's not that we've learned something new necessarily, although sometimes we do, of course. But sometimes you just need to hear it again. Uh, I remember someone sitting not too far away once preaching the closing sermon at the Banner of Truth Ministers Conference and he stood up and preached the gospel to us. But your pastors, you don't need to hear the gospel. Oh, we certainly did. We certainly did. It was wonderful for me to be able to be sitting down that side last week. Not because I didn't know any of the things that were being preached. But I just needed the encouragement of being reminded about it all over again in a fresh way. I'm sure that's how Titus felt when Paul's letter arrived. He needs this encouragement. And there are three main areas of focus in this letter. Church leadership in chapter 1, church members in chapter 2, and our witness and relationship to those outside the church in chapter 3. There's nothing in this letter that Belvedere Road Church does not need. So I trust we'll find great benefit from considering it together. So it's to Titus in Crete, and it's from Paul, slave and apostle. Now, the previous series that I did back in um, end of January and into February, we were thinking about the gospel. And in the opening sermon, I was talking about the the reliability of the scriptures that we're looking at because most of them came from the Apostle Paul. And I spent quite a bit of time talking about Paul, his background, where he came from, um, all those kinds of things. I'm not going to repeat all of that this morning. Um, if, you've, if you're not aware of some of those things, well, you can go and listen to that sermon again on the website. It was the morning of January the 21st, if you need to, if you need to know. And there's other information there about the Apostle Paul. But we'll emphasise certain things that are clearly in this letter. That he's an apostle. In your hands, you're holding a letter which comes from one who was personally, personally called, personally chosen, personally appointed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now tonight we're going to look at the need that they had in churches for elders. Elders are not called and chosen or appointed in the way that Paul was called and chosen and appointed as an apostle. This man heard the risen Christ's voice. 
this man met with him face to face in a unique way as the one who was the apostle born out of due time, but it happened. This man received direct revelation from Christ by the Holy Spirit. And you have those words in your hand, on your lap. That's what Paul is saying in verse 3. God's truth committed to Paul according to the commandment of God our Saviour. You don't get to read letters like this anywhere else except in the Bible. That's what makes this letter very special and exceedingly precious because of where it comes from. But before referring to his apostleship, Paul provides what he believes to be his ultimate and his truest identity. Uh, I, rem I remember once being given someone's business card and at the top of the card it bore his name and it had about seven sets of initials after his name. The first set of initials was QC. He was a Queen's Counsel. As it turned out, he was a very senior barrister indeed. Next, CBE, Commander of the Order of the British Empire. Of all those BE honours, that's the top one. Next up, Knight of the Realm. I suspect he probably looked forward to receiving that one day and was looking forward to having to have his business card reprinted. Following that was a whole load of initials, some of which I didn't have a clue what they meant, but they were all his qualifications, they were all his professional affiliations. Now, there was nothing to stop that man simply having his name on his business card. But no, a very bold statement was being made. Do you realise who you're dealing with? If you remember what Paul says about his background in Philippians chapter 3, you'll know that he could have had a very impressive business card. Very impressive indeed. But since he's met Christ, his business card says only two things. And the first is this. Slave. His business card says Paul. Slave. Now, the New King James Version says either servant or bond servant, depending upon which edition you're reading. All the other translations I looked at also have the word servant. But the Greek word is doulos, which is a bond slave. In the New King James Version, the word slave appears 16 times in the New Testament. And with one exception, the Greek word is doulos, which is literally a slave, the lowest rank in society. Who'd want to be a slave? Who'd want to announce it? That's something you'd cover up if you could. The other one exception, by the way, that isn't doulos, that's the demon-possessed slave girl in Acts chapter 16. And the Greek word that Luke uses there is a specific word for a female slave. But normally it's doulos, and that's what Paul calls himself. I'm doulos, I'm a slave. Paul has two identities. Number one, 
He's a bond slave to Christ. What does that mean? It means I'm no longer on my own. I don't merely serve Christ, he says, like one who might serve at a table. I belong to Christ. He owns me. He is my Lord, my master and my king. And Paul has given himself to the absolute lordship and kingship of Christ in his life. Completely. I wonder, is that you? Is that your number one identity in the world? Is that the first thing you want people to know about you? <coughs> that you are a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ in everything. Does that eclipse everything else that could be said about you? All the boasts that you could put on your business card, have they all been wiped off and replaced with the word slave? Or are they all at least second to that? And first, a slave. Now, some of you have struggles in your Christian life. Some of you struggle maybe with your witness at home, at work, school, university. For some of you, part of the problem might be this. That there are areas in your life where you are not a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not first a slave. You're not willing to be known as a slave of Christ. Some of you may be struggling assurance or making progress in your faith. Maybe some of you struggle with establishing good biblical habits and disciplines in the Christian life. And for some of you, part of that problem may be this. There are areas in your life where you are not first a slave of Christ. Some of you are not, not as involved in the life of the church as fully as you should be. Those of you who are able. You don't meet with us as often as you should. You have little or no involvement in the various activities that do take place in the church. And you could. Some of you can't. But some of you could, but you don't. And if you don't, you actually seldom think to pray for them. And for some of you, this may be part of the problem. You have not, in certain areas of your life, made yourself first a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that's you, you know you're missing out on many of the great joys and spiritual blessings that Christians like Paul have known. Because they can only be known by those who live in wholehearted, whole-of-life submission to God in Christ Jesus. He's a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so must we all be. And secondly, he's an apostle. We've mentioned this already. We notice that Paul in the New Testament, he never uses the word apostle as a title. He just uses it to describe who he is. 
he uses it to describe the role and the function and the authority that God has given him as an apostle. He's not making a proud boast. He's just reminding us that he is one to whom God has revealed himself in a very special and unique way. He's reminding us that the very word of God is being spoken through him. And that's the issue at stake both both for Paul, for Titus and for you. This is the word of God we're reading. It's not just the thoughts of a man. It's not just the counsel of a man. It's the word of God. Because of the work that God is doing through him in verse 3 that he explains. So the letter also gives Titus the necessary clout and authority to deal with the things that he has to deal with. And the things that he has to overcome, the things that he has to put right, the things that have to be made well in these churches. And we notice that as Paul continues in this opening, his letters, if you read the other letters, he always begins with statements of truth. It's very interesting that he does that. Now, you or I, we would often begin a letter with feelings. How are you? How are you feeling? How are things going? We would often say, well, these are all things that shift and change. These are all things that vary. They depend upon my mood that day. They depend upon my outlook. They depend upon the measurements that I'm using to evaluate all of these kinds of things. This can be very shaky ground. (coughs) Paul prefers to begin his letters with eternal truth. So that immediately... His, his listeners, his readers, they have their hearts and minds directed away from themselves and onto solid ground. Away from themselves and heavenward. Away from the temporary and to the eternal. That's how Paul begins his letters. You see, the first approach, hi, how are you? How are you feeling? How are things going? That invites us to look at ourselves. That invites us either to pour out all of our problems and worries and complaints. And some of you have learned that what you do with that person is not ask them, how are you today? Because that's all they'll do. But that's what it invites us to do, to look inwardly. Oh, well, let me tell you. And it's either complaints and worries or you just spout off all your latest victories and achievements. Paul's approach invites us to rejoice in the blessings of God. In Christ, he opens his letter with eternal truth. Well, let's just think about some of those things that he says in our final point. Rejoice in the blessings of God in Christ. And that's what he does in these opening lines of his letter. Well, first of all, we note that he talks about being elect for eternity. You see that there? In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. And in verse 1, according to the faith of God's elect. Elect. For eternity. In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. Well, there's... Three glorious points for a sermon all of their own there, aren't there? Elect, 
the hope of eternal life and promised by a God who cannot lie. But Paul is writing to those who are the chosen ones of God. And he reminds them that's who they are. Why are you a church at all? How did you become a church in the first place? You might be wondering how come there are churches in Crete at all? Well, we, probably some of them heard the gospel on the day of Pentecost because there were all of those nations represented there at Pentecost and probably some of them were converted there and came back to the island. But how are you a church at all? Because God chose you. And he did so even before time began. And that's a before time began. That's a phrase he uses in his second letter to Timothy as well. Before time began, he chose you. That's a great thing to know. Maybe you're one of those Christians who struggle. And the reason that you struggle is because of sins and circumstances in your life before you were saved. And you have memories, you have thoughts, you have recollections, and they just seem to kind of keep on haunting you. And they rob you of your joy, they rob you of your assurance as a believer. Because those memories are still there. If that's a problem for you, I've got something to say to you. Even before you had done or been involved in any of those things, God had chosen you. Knowing all of those things, God still chose you. And Christ came and died for you. As you were doing all of those things, you remained a chosen one. God didn't look at your life, decide I've probably made a bad choice here and turn you away and unchoose you. You remained a chosen one, even then. And Jesus came to bring sinners like you to repentance and to faith and to know his love. And now our thoughts are taken away from ourselves. And we're thinking of God. And we're thinking of his grace and his mercy. And his astonishing kindness. His amazing compassion and his boundless love. That yes, he actually even chose me. To be his child. And old things really have all passed away and all things really have become new because he chose me and as Paul opens his letters our minds are taken forwards and upwards away from the here and now in hope of eternal life now the here and now is important the here and now has a place in God's purposes. The here and now is where God has called and placed you to serve him and to live for him and to be a witness. The here and now is where you must grow and learn and work 
But the here and now is not the ultimate goal. Eternity is. The here and now is not where you receive your reward. Eternity is, if you're a believer. The here and now is not the place of unbroken happiness, limitless wealth, incredible health and unchallenged victory over every circumstance. But eternity is. Paul invites his readers, oh, for then. Be ready for then. Look forward to then. Serve Christ now for then. Be faithful now for then. In hope of eternal life. What a difference that ought to make in our lives day by day. And all of this established in God and by God before time began. Wonderful, isn't it? And he speaks of faith. According to the faith of God's elect. In other words, this letter is for the building up of you in your faith. That's why he's writing. This letter is to do you good in your faith. Your salvation is of faith by grace. Without faith, we read in the scriptures, it's impossible to please God because to live a life that pleases God can only be lived by faith. A faith that brings you into union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul wants to build you up and edify the saints in faith. It's what this letter is designed for. It's going to do your faith good as we read it and consider it together. This is a letter worth reading and studying and meditating upon. And it's full of truth. Truth is mentioned. God in due time manifested his word through preaching committed to me. He's talking about truth. God's truth, as found in his word, committed and manifested through preaching. The, the Apostle Paul is all about truth. Paul has a very special place in the plans of God when it comes to truth. Because of the truth that God will reveal through him. The truth about the spiritual state of men and women outside of God. The truth about the the plan of salvation that God has and was completed and fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. The truth about the gospel. The truth about Calvary. The truth about the empty tomb. The truth, the truth about Christ in our lives and reigns forever. The truth about the hope that every believer has for all of eternity in the Lord Jesus Christ. The truth is Paul's great concern. God has made known his word, his truth, through men like Paul, and in a particular way through men like Paul. And guarding and not departing from this truth is paramount in Paul's ministry. And actually this truth also is the basis of any fellowship that churches can have together. This truth is the basis of our fellowship. This is God's word given to a sinful world that God's made known through his appointed spokesman. If you want to know this truth, 
you have to come to those to whom it was made manifest and from whom it was declared. And you find it here in the Bible. It's the only place you find this truth. It's here, written down, recorded for us. The only way to access this truth is to turn to this book. And the ongoing method of communication in explaining it and understanding it is through preaching. Nothing's changed. That's still God's chosen method by which we might understand this wonderful book. And this truth has a purpose. This truth was given for a reason. Look at the end of verse 1. To produce godliness in the one who listens to it. That's the purpose of this truth. To make you godly. To make you Christ-like. Many have heard it. Like in the parable of the sower. But it's never produced in them godliness. Not godliness that lasts. But as in the letters to the, letters to the Revelation they remind us that if you have an ear to hear, let them hear and it will produce godliness in the life of the hearer. Do you want to know how you ought to live as a Christian? Do you want to live the kind of life that God has designed for those who know and love him? This truth will produce that life in you. The seed will bear its fruit. Now it all needs the vital work of the Spirit of God, mind you. The Bible, just on its own, as a book, can't help you any more than any book on self-help that Waterstones sell can help you. But the Holy Spirit comes and works in the life of the, of the believer. But the Spirit has no work of his own that he brings, we're told. He brings the work of Christ. He brings the word of Christ. He brings the truth of Christ. He brings the merits of Christ. And he brings God's truth to bear upon the mind and soul of the unbeliever to bring them to faith and on the believer that they might grow. And the intended fruit is godliness. This truth is that you might be godly. We're to hide this word in our hearts that we might not sin against him because we're to be godly. If the truth is not leading us into godliness, we do not know this truth and we do not have it no matter what we say. The churches on the island of Crete are in a real mess. They need a radical shake-up and this introduction fills us with hope for the churches of Crete. And it fills us with hope for ourselves and for every church. <coughs> there may well be some sitting in congregations who are not part of God's new covenant people, but God has his elect, he has his chosen ones. And it's his chosen ones to whom this letter is given. And it's his chosen ones in whom and for whom this letter will do them much good. Such are Christ's, such as are Christ will find their, their hearts and their souls lifted again as they remember the glorious nature and character and goodness of God in choosing them, though they were nothing. Those of you who are those chosen ones, you'll drink in the truth of this letter. And in it will it will produce. Godliness. That 
that actually ought to make us all feel a little bit excited, you know. God's going to produce godliness in you through his truth. Here's a letter about how a, can ch how a church can grow spiritually. How a church can remain faithful. How a church can be useful to God. I want to know that, don't you? And we know that this church comes from a God who loves us and cares deeply for us. Grace. Oh, how the world needs grace. Grace. Mercy. Peace. From God. And from your Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an encouraging start to a glorious letter. And if we will take note of it, it will do us much, much spiritual good.